Thanks for joining us for this Views and Brews podcast, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's so... (laughs) I was like, where's that coming from? I'm so glad you're here. I thought to myself, well, we'll probably just, it will probably be just us and ghosts tonight because of the election coverage and everybody is glued to their radios, as it were. (laughs) But I'm so glad to see you all here. Um, We have a fantastic conversation ahead. And we'll be having questions a little bit toward the end. And Jack Anderson is going to come along with a microphone. So make sure that you are on mic, because we want to make sure we get all of the voices on the podcast. I wanted to get started with uh, a couple lines from the poem of one of our guests this evening. And when I heard this, I thought, we have got to do a show on ghosts in poetry and in theater and in literature and all of these alternative ways that we have to talk about history and remembering and psychology and all this fantastic stuff. And so um, Roger Reeves, who I'll introduce in just a minute, came on our show, This Is Just To Say, the host of which is the wife of this man, Kirkland. And um, he read his poem, um, Children Listen. And the last couple of lines are, uh, children, you were never meant to be human. You must be the grass. You must grow wildly over the graves. And this idea of you were never meant to be human caused me to think of, um, well, what does it mean to be human? And what are the stories that are told by those who are not considered human? And how many different ways have has this uh, sense of not being human been manifest in literature and in plays and poetry over the years? Um, and Kirk also wrote a book uh, called um, Where... Werewolf. What am I? Rules for werewolves. Rules for of werewolves. It's called werewolves. Were, wow. <laughs> and and he came on a show that we did and talked a lot about this idea of being feral and what that means in literature. So I thought these two men would be fantastic guests to talk about ghosts and haunting in theater and poetry. So we have playwright from the Department of Theater and Dance here at UT, Professor Dr. Kirk Lynn. Welcome. Are you not, I'm not a doctor? I'm not a doctor, no. Just Kirk. I'm not a real doctor. I wouldn't even let my students call me professor. They just have to call me Kirk. Kirk? That's my name, yeah. Okay, we'll do it. Call me Kirk. Kirk it is. And also we have, I'll just call you a doctor because we don't know yet whether or not it's going to be doctor or not. Um, but from the Department of English Literature here at UT, poet, professor, Dr. Roger Reeves. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So since we started with your poem, why don't you tell us a little bit about the idea of ghosts, what, what they are to you, what they have meant to you, and how you've interpreted them over time. Sure. Uh, it's funny because I think my mom, if she knew I was doing this podcast, would be very upset. Uh, I was raised uh, Pentecostal. So the only ghost that was allowed was the Holy Ghost, right? And it's interesting because that is my first experience with spirit, like with the idea of something beyond, something that could enter the self, enter a human, and transform them, uh, transform their actions. And so it's funny, when I was preparing for this, I, I thought about what are the first manifestations of like ghosts in my life, and it was thinking about like the Holy Ghost descending upon Mary, and bringing child, right? Or John the Baptist, and that sort of notion of the Holy Spirit descending. Um, And so my first experience with ghosts actually comes in the Pentecostal church, uh, which is 
that they were highly suspicious, right? Like you were supposed to be very suspicious of ghosts. Ghosts weren't something that were allowed. Like I was never allowed to celebrate Halloween as a kid. Like I couldn't go trick or treating. We didn't do any of that, right? Um, anytime something was like ghostly on TV, even if it was like Casper the Friendly Ghost, we had to like cover our eyes at home because my mother was scared that like some spirit would enter us. Yeah, so it's interesting now because one of the things I'm really interested in is hauntings and the way in which um, I think that like our ancestors are around us. I think that the way in which I think about um, spirit as something very essential to my life and not the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and the literature that I'm attracted to, like when I think, when you first asked, I, the, the first piece of literature I thought of was Beloved, right? Which is like the great American ghost story, right? Which is the slave, the slave uh, child that is killed comes back, right? And visits the parents, visits the, the family. So that's sort of my experience with ghosts and the way I think of ghosts, I think they're awesome too. I think like we should just let them in, just be like, all right, come on through. If you wanna, you wanna hang, come and sit down, have a beer, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting too that you start with, you know, this idea of the Holy Ghost because Kirk, you know, there's a lot of poetry, a lot of um, theater in the Bible, in the Old Testament also. And, and the, the way that ghosts kind of tell these stories and interpret, God and interpret a different reality than the one that people are living is something that comes through in your work, you know, and that you've thought a lot about. Maybe in a similar vein, I was raised Southern Baptist and probably at a key moment in my life too, we had a, um, my church split, uh, First Baptist Church in San Antonio had this great split in which a sort of more evangelical pastor came who could speak in tongues, who could be possessed of the spirit, and this giant mega church sort of split as to who was cool with that and who wasn't. It's interesting now being a sort of um, Buddhist progressive. At the time when I was a teenager, I was like, no, I'm on the side of the Pentecostal guy. I'm, a, I'm on the side of the person who can speak in the tongues of angels. Um, I was down with that. Um, and that notion of being possessed by the spirit um, I mean, I think it's sort of essential to the notion of theater um, that a person's going to stand on stage and is going to speak to you as a god or as a king. Um, and how do you do that? I was, as I was preparing for today, I was like Googling around. Um, there's quite a bit of information on the internet about how dangerous acting is. Um, essentially, Christian websites and right wing websites say that acting is demon possession and you should keep your kids away from it because the spirit of those characters will get into them. Um, which I thought, great. Yeah, I mean, me too. Yeah. Awesome. Can I yeah. be like Hamlet? Because I do, that notion of like, um, the notion of like, how do I, you know, I'm a son of a barber from San Antonio, like how do I get to be a king? Well, the stage allows me to be a king or a god. Um, there are ways in which the theater allows a different spirit to enter into you. And then I do think think that you can then carry some of that into your normal life where because I know how to act as a king or a god or a kind person or a cruel person that now I know how to move in the world in a different way. My empathy has been, you know, we both worked out today that you can also work out your empathy of what is it like to treat someone this way or that way? What is it like to encounter somebody who I'm not and, and become a different person? Your, your empathetic muscles are stronger. Well, and I think it's interesting that we're doing this on election night because isn't it in Hamlet where they it's say- It's election night? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing what here? Is this happening? is insane. <laughs> like, is it, is it in Hamlet where they say the play's the thing that you, by which you can catch, catch the conscience of the king, yeah. right? This is That's such a great, I mean, it's one of my favorite plays to study and to teach, but the, you know, the premise, the very first thing that happens in Hamlet, of course, the ghost shows up. And then there's this notion of like, he won't speak to anybody, so we'll, we'll 
it looks like Hamlet's dad. We'll get Hamlet. We'll see if we'll speak to him. The ghost, in fact, does speak to Hamlet. And Hamlet's very next thing he has to do is he's like, well, the ghost could be good or bad. So I have to first test this theory. The ghost has asked me to avenge him, but I don't know if he's a heavenly ghost or a hellish ghost. So I have to test out whether this is true. And then he gets players to essentially play a murder and we'll watch Claudius and see if he'll be good. But I was thinking a lot, the part that I was really interested in, in Hamlet, when I was thinking about today, was this, you know, on the stage, a ghost comes out and speaks, and we, we can all see the ghost, and we can know that the ghost is real, right? He speaks, he moves, we believe that Hamlet is seeing the ghost. But there's a great scene in which Hamlet and his mother and the ghost are all there together, and the ghost speaks to Hamlet, and Gertrude can't hear. And you get this great, the power of that scene in which we see a non-believer, and we know that she's wrong because we as the audience hear the ghost speak, but we also understand that she doesn't hear him. And we both get to, we essentially in some ways get empathy for the non-believer, that we both understand that she's wrong and um, we know that she can't hear the ghost. And there's this duality there in the scene that's compelling. Um, a lot of times I think when we see people of, other, I mean, talk about election night, people of other beliefs, we know that they're wrong, but we don't have empathy for them. We don't see why they're why they believe the why they believe counter to what we believe, um, but the stage can present this thing where not only do we know she's wrong, but we also know that she can't hear, and so we feel sympathy. But yeah. is she wrong? What I mean yeah, is, that's a great question. Yeah, like in her inability to encounter, right? That doesn't make someone necessarily wrong. It just means that we they haven't had that encounter, therefore they don't have what we might say is evidence of the spirit, right? Like like there isn't the, the spirit hasn't yet touched, right, and hasn't reached. So that to me is the great conflict too, right? The way in which spirit does reach some doesn't reach others. Yeah. Right. And so I, I, yeah, maybe wrong is the wrong word, but we feel empathy for it. We we yes. we see that she can't hear the ghost, so of course she doesn't believe in the ghost. She can't see him or hear him. Um, and because we can see her inability, like because we can see her not be touched, we can see her not be affected by the spirit, um, we understand why Hamlet believes what he does and wants to do what he does, but we also understand why Gertrude is like, you are acting crazy, act normal. Um, and we can see both at the same time, which I think is, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I talked to a ghost tonight, I think, oh, they're crazy. Um, I don't. You don't? I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I don't see the, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't I mean, have as I much have, empathy as I should. I mean, maybe it's because in my 20s, I yeah. spent a lot of time in Atlanta working in communities of color that believed in spirit, that spirit could visit them, that spirit did visit them, um, where people would say, you know, I, my grandmother was here last night, or um, there was a spirit here, I think it was a runaway slave. Like, yeah. And that just became regular, yeah. right? And also, I'm a poet. And poets say, wow, I wish I could say the word, but things regularly. And for me, it just, I think it's a possibility. Just, um, yeah, I just think it's a possibility in that there's, I always say there's all types of knowings and all, there's many ways of knowing a thing. And there's, and, and I think in some ways, knowings announce themselves in, in different ways. And some people are open to different ways of knowing and feeling and I mean, if you if, if a ghost comes with something f for you to you about me, please come to me and tell me <laughs> what that ghost said, because I don't want to be absent of that knowing. Right. Like I'm willing. I'm not going to be like Gertrude. Just because I didn't hear it don't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. 
And there's also this, there's also like two histories in that too. You know, like there's a history that is carried in the one type of knowing and there's another history that's carried in another type of knowledge. And ghosts through literature can carry histories with them and impart them to characters and impart them to us that, that is outside of like a mainstream narrative. So when you're talking about you know the slave narrative, like that's outside of a mainstream narrative, and those stories are told through ghosts. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I can't help. Again, um, it's funny. I was thinking of Toni Morrison's Beloved a lot, partly because of the way the ghost comes back. So if you don't know the story of Beloved, uh, there's a character, Setha. Uh, which is actually based on a real historical figure named Margaret Garner. And Setha um, has escaped to Ohio, but her slave master tracks her down. And uh, she's taken her children up there. And rather than her children going back to slavery, she tries to kill them. And she's actually able to succeed in killing one of them. Um, and then about 14, 15 years later, that the, the daughter that she has killed comes back in the form of a of a grown woman almost, a late teen, early young adult woman, and comes to the house and begins to be at the house and Setha recognizes that the spirit, she knows the spirit and so does the daughter Denver. Uh, and the community even recognizes something ain't right at this house, right? And they start to see, then the spirit shows up and the whole community has, is forced to contend, it's not just Setha that must deal with this spirit, but the whole sort of African-American community around 124, um, the, which is the house number, the Bluestone, must deal with this. And so it's an interesting way in which, to me, ghost in African-American community means, I think about this, there's this other term called Sankofa, which means looking back, returning, and getting what the lesson that you haven't gotten. And there's a way in which ghosts in African-American communities are about sort of getting a lesson that was left behind or one that the community needs. So the ghost begins, becomes the sort of arbiter, becomes the apparatus by which the community can move forward, right? And there's no way to move forward without acknowledging the ghost, right? Without dealing with that past. Um, whatever that past may be. So to me, the ghost is actually a thing that's calling for a different set of community. I mean, maybe we need some ghosts to show up in our current moment and help us figure out this shit, I mean, this stuff going on um, in our current political moment. Maybe we need more ghosts in that way. I, I was looking today, the, the, the correspondence, the, uh, essentially almost all of no theater follows the same pattern, which is that there's a protagonist who meets a ghost, then recognizes the ghost, then dances with the ghost, and then the two-part company in peace, usually. And that notion of like, we need ghosts to sort of inform us in certain ways, to dance with us in certain ways, and then part. Um, the idea that a literature that is as long, um, you know, and it's storied as all of no theater has the same pattern over and over again, that we need to meet a ghost, recognize them, the difference between those two things, dance with them, and then let them go, um, seems deeply profound, yeah, yeah. And there was something that you said also, Roger, in, in the interview that I was talking about, where you said you think that ghosts today in science are like DNA testing. Yeah, I mean, epigenetics has proven this, right? There's this new field opening up. Um, I have a friend, uh, she's an anthropologist that's actually writing on this. The way that's, you know, you used to hear people say, oh, it's in my DNA, you know, this, this, this history, this story, who I am is in my DNA. And, and scientists are actually like, yeah. Like the story, like the histories of our grandparents and our great grandparents and our great great parents, actually they're saying that the reverberations actually do encode in our DNA. 
So there's a way in which DNA is a type of ghost, right? Like it brings forth generations. I can't help but think about, you know, I have a daughter, right? And sort of her eggs, right? She's already has the sort of DNA for her children, right? And her mother did too. So like there's a way in which we carry this DNA that goes well far back beyond us, right? So there's a way in which there's a great, it's funny, it makes me think of this title of a book. It's a memoir by uh, a guy named Jan Carew who actually spent, Malcolm, he spent the last week with Malcolm X before he was killed in London. Um, Jan Carew was a um, kind of a revolutionary as well as a novelist um, from the Caribbean. And he has a book called Ghost in Our Blood and there's a way in which DNA is the ghost in our blood, right? Those are the ancestors, right? Constantly sort of speaking to us. Like when I look at pictures of, from the 19th century of my family, I'm like, oh, there I am, already, already in, the, in that face. Um, and so the, to me, yeah, DNA seems to be a place uh, where you might see and might think of the stories, right, that have happened 100 years before you were born transferred to you. And Kirk, you know, you mentioned this uh, about this idea of possession, you know, being possessed as an actor on stage. Where do you think today that possession happens in art and in, in film, or where do you think it happens? It happens all the time to me when I listen to music. Um, I listen to music as I walk across campus, as I run, as I work out, and I listen to a certain kind of music because I want a certain kind of spirit to embody me. Um, it happens when I play music for my kids. Um, but I do, I mean, I also think the reason I write is because I want to take my spirit, my thoughts, and I want to put it in other people. Um, I think the reason I read voraciously uh, is because I'm looking for something, and those moments you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but if you read 50 novels and five of them possess you and you have to get back to it and you have to know it and you want to read slowly so you can stay with it, um, that seems like a pretty good percentage to me. Um, and I'm completely, when you really distance yourself from what the act is, that um, a person has thoughts, they translate them into strange symbols, uh, and then you read those strange symbols and those thoughts or some version of those thoughts goes inside your head. It's a very strange practice, um, which sounds pretty magical to me. And there's certainly poems, stories, plays that possess me. And they go, I'm not an actor. I perform sometimes, but uh, um, the idea that you will embody a character, I think, is beyond my experience and starts to touch on the supernatural, that what actors do when they let themselves become another person, another character, um, and speak, rant and rave, cry, cry earnestly, um, and then the lights go out and they go to their dressing room and drink a beer. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. And this, this, what you talked about is really interesting, like the way in which sound and memorization uh, can transform a place and also a person. You know, like the way in which that act of remembering and then reciting, it's also something that in poetry is very profound, like this way that sound transforms the area in which you're, you're reading it in. So talk a little bit about how like that works and what that process is like. I mean, it's ritual, it's chanting, it is, it is, it's all the things you want to associate with sort of mysticism and magic. Um, I mean, we're uh, maybe out of left field, maybe because a ghost gave it to me, a spirit, but I'll follow it. Um, uh, the thing that jumped into my head, there's a piece of music I really love called I Am Sitting in a Room by Alvin Lussier. I don't really know how to know, say his name. A, a composer um, who made a piece where he speaks a single sentence and plays it into a room, records that playback, and then 
plays it again into a room and records that. Um, and essentially he's trying to capture the resonant frequency of rooms that this room is like a tuba and that as I speak into it, the sound bounces off the walls. And if you keep capturing that sound and playing it back, essentially the room tone, the, the natural resonant room tone starts to play. Um, and that Alvin Luce is, is over the course of 45 minutes changing uh, spoken language into a resonant tone and re like releasing the room, the instrument of the room into the room um, and sort of transforming space. Um, I do think that the that music and sound and language sort of transform space and time. Yeah, I think like if I'm going to go sort of basic and then like think about a recipe. Right, when we think about like a recipe, like it starts off as words, on a, it starts off with measurements, and all of a sudden later you may have like a cake. Right, that's magic. You went from words on a page, ingredients dissembled, to assembling them to creating a cake. Right, that to me is the like power of words and language. I think spells, like spells are the basis of poems. Right, if we think about the idea that a spell could en could enchant or encant a new possibility, you know, like you know, nobody wants to say this, but if we think about the opening of the Christian Bible, right, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light, right? Language begat, right? So language begats a thing. There's this thing um, in literature, uh, in the study of rhetoric, in particular, called the performative utterance, and I love to talk about the performative utterance, partly because I think it's where poetry and rhetoric and magic all sort of intertwined, which is there's this constant of utterance, like the room is dark, right? But then there's the performative utterance, which is like, I now pronounce you man and wife, right? The moment before that, y'all was just some people that knew each other and kind of loved each other, right? And then legally, if the right person says this thing, y'all are a whole new entity with all new responsibilities and rights and things like that, right? That is magic, right? When we name a thing and the thing becomes, that is magic, right? And I think that's what, I mean, in some ways, that's the democratic process, right? Like, that's what we're embarking upon now. All of a sudden, people are contending for this position called senator, called congressperson, called house, called ACC chair of the, you know, of the, of the water on the next level by the creek. You know, like, there's all these positions, right? And we get to decide through language whether that person is that or not. Right, so we're always dealing sort of in, in this magic, right? And, I, and as a poet, I'm always interested in the poem as an event. I believe I can write a poem that could change your life. In fact, if I don't believe that, I shouldn't be writing my poem, right? Like I shouldn't be doing that. The poem is the event. The poem is the change, right? Is the inhabitation of it. There's a, um, sorry I'm going on, but there's this, I love this quote from Adrian Rich. It's in a poem, Adrian Rich, famous, brilliant political poet, uh, who said, poetry isn't revolution, but a way of knowing why it must come. And I think about language does that. It announces the future. It inhabits, it makes the invisible visible. Right? And I think that like, that's why I, I write. I'm interested in making the invisible visible. And I th I, now I'm moved by this notion that um, 
Those the great poems, the great plays that don't just call that don't just take Shakespeare's spirit and put it inside me, but call my own spirit home. Where I suddenly feel, you know, there are certainly things I do in the day where my spirit is not available. Um, answering emails. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm not in the room. And then there are times when I feel myself come back to myself. Um, and sometimes literature can do that for me. When the poet, not only when the playwright, uh, the novelist, not only calls their spirit into the room, but calls me back home. Um, and I'm suddenly more present with myself and in the space. That's the ghost I most want to be haunted by, is my own true spirit, if I could ever meet that that spirit. And this, these, this is what we're talking about. Like, this is actually the reason why poets and playwrights and writers are threatening. You know, this is why, like, when I when I hear you say this, I mean, this is like everything that is allowing people to think for themselves, to get outside of their bodies, to to experience the world, to know the human condition, or whatever. I mean, this is like this is what's really threatening. You know, so talk a little bit about like what is for you. You know, how do you do you feel threatened as as poets and as playwrights? Do you feel like this is there's a space where um, you're not not threatened yourselves, but like where it's a challenge for you to do what you do? And what is, the, what is the struggle that you have to really embody yourselves as artists in this time? I mean, I'll jump in and say, I think, I mean, I think my, the threat I feel is the degree to which I let myself be distracted um, and let my spirit be float away or be, uh, uh, you know, I mean, to me, the great curse is email, the great curse is video games, the great curse is uh, uh, sports when I'm not doing it right, when I'm not thinking about it right. Um, the great salvation are my children, our books, our students when we're in a sort of holy space together. Um, uh, but I think those times, I mean, there are moments when I really wake up and think, where was I for the last hour? I wasn't here. Um, and not only was I not here, but I wasn't someplace holy or someplace fantastic or imaginative, um, but just was deadened for a while. Um, I think that's the great threat to me. I love the notion of like, I do want to possess people and change them and drive them to certain manias, especially mm -hmm. around love and community, yeah. um, radicalness, wildness, this idea of the feral inside us, the animal inside us being released. Um, but I don't want to... I mean, I'm trying to think of the most unholy things that, you know, for me that I do. I'll try and name one. I mean, I don't want to make Pardon the Interruption, which is a show I deeply love, but it's mostly a show I use as a sports show, a sports talk show, that I sort of use to turn off my brain and to not feel anxious and to not be present. Um, I don't want to make those. Yeah, I think for me, what is most dangerous, it's funny, it's connected. It's through... Um, there's um, this quote I remind myself of every day. Uh, an older poet said it to me. He says, and it's borrowed from Thelonious Monk. He says, the genius is the man or woman who is most himself. And I think there is a way in which, even in today, even as a poet, even as a writer, um, who's trying to critically embody himself, there's ways in which I get distracted from myself or I'm trying to be another self or I'm scared of the self that I am, um, or scared to show that self. And so I think I've been recently really thinking about sitting inside being most myself, even if being most myself means being in doubt, right? Like I think one of the things that, that ghosts bring up is, is doubt. 
right? And I think we don't, we, I think we do a very poor job in the West of dealing with doubt. Uh, we see it as something to run away from, something to not be in the position of, but I can't help but think of Keats here and negative capability, right? The ability to be in doubt is actually the ability to sort of be somewhat mastered. Um, you know, I think we always think that being, st we think of stability as the ultimate place to be, but stability can also, you know, corpses are very stable. <laughs> you know? I don't know if I want to be that stable right now. So. And that's what Hamlet does too, is he's questioning always. This consciousness is like, he's constantly questioning what it means to be present in the world and what the world is. And I would note the first moment of, uh, of certainty he has, um, in my understanding of the play, he sees Claudius praying. He says, I could stab him now, but wait, no, no, no. If I stabbed him now, he would go to heaven. That sucks. Uh, <laughs> And he, say, he has, a, to me, a very clear speech where he says, the next time I see him cursing or gambling or doing any tiny sin, I'm going to stab him right in that moment. And when he goes to see Gertrude, he catches uh, uh, Claudius eavesdropping and he stabs him immediately. He's certain. He knows what he's doing. He stabs him immediately, except it's not Claudius. It's Polonius. And so he commits a murder. And that certainty is actually kind of dangerous that, like, I know what I'm doing. I am not in doubt. I, I will act as soon as I have... Uh, uh, clarity and that that certainty can cause you to, you know, in that case, commit the great sin of like making a new ghost to kill somebody. And that's another great thing, uh, Roger, about your poem is that it begins, it turns out, however, that I was deeply mistaken about the end of the world. I mean, it, it begins with doubt, you mm -hmm. know, which is really a fantastic place to be in, as you're saying. Yeah. And another thing that it, it just reminded me of is, is this idea of being present with the world, is noticing the ghosts, is noticing things, letting things talk to you. And what Simone Weil said was, attention is a form of prayer. And these ideas of things taking away our attention or what we're paying attention to, and the way that they take us away from ourselves and take us away from being present as a threat, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's so interesting. I've been, I, was, I was thinking about the monstrous last week. I, I do this every now and then where I'll just be like, oh, what is the monstrous? Because I'm really interested in Frankenstein um, as it relates to like African-American bodies. Um, because I often think that we're kind of Frankensteined. And in fact, uh, when the language of bringing African-American former slaves into the citizenry uh, in the reconstruction, it was very much descri described as um, basically attaching alien appendages, right? So it was very Frankenstein to think. But I think the reason we fear the monstrous much in the way that we fear the ghost is because the monstrous reminds us of life, but a life that is not yet mitigated by law or social mores, right? So the ghost doesn't sort of announce itself, right? The ghost just shows up, right? And the monstrous shows up in, in its feralness or in its wildness and says, I'm here, right? That sort of radical presence is, most of us cannot deal with that, right, generally. Like, if all of a sudden, like, there was a zombie right behind me, I'm sure I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, what's up? You know, like, I'd be like, ah! Jumping over tables, right? But it's announced itself, right? It's, it's, it's that radicality. And I think that that sort of being present, announcing yourself however you want, is very scary to us, right? And I think that I'm trying to learn to embrace that, right? Wherever it comes, however it comes to really be like, oh, okay, there's a zombie here. All right, we're going to work with that, you know? And 
Kirk, this shows up in, in Rules for Werewolves in an interesting way, too, because you have these kids who are like street kids inhabiting these houses and kind of like haunting these houses in a way. Yeah. The premise is that these, uh, these kids want to live like uh, anybody else in the world, and so they take over the houses that they want to live in, and then they become... I mean, there's a... Uh, not to give too much away, but in the book, they find a really great house that has cable TV and fresh food and um, everything they want, and they start to sort of become suburban. They're doing workout videos. They're reading the books that these people have. And so this, the, as much as they're haunting the house, the sort of material of the house is haunting them as well, um, and it's causing a fight between different members of like, how wild are we going to be? Are we doing this so that we can eat fresh food and watch all the cable, or are we doing this so that we can destroy things and be wild and they're they're trying to decide who they are and that is it's such an interesting image also because of the way that we interpret what is a zombie you know what is a monster and i think in a lot of an american society that's what we want to do with poverty and homelessness mm -hmm. we want to put mm -hmm. it out of the way you know we don't mm -hmm. want to see it mm -hmm. and so when these kids come to haunt these houses I, that's really scary for this for the idea of suburbia yeah, yeah, that at any house, yeah, what's going on? I mean, I think one of the reasons we have houses is so that we can do our monstrous things in private uh, and not be seen. Um, and which is, again, why homelessness, why uh, uh, mental illness, that it's, n it's out there in public. You have to look at it. You don't hide that away. You don't hide that depravity, that need, that hunger. Because um, that is happening in houses as well. Um, but when it's on the street and you have to look at it when you come to that intersection, you're like, oh, that's not tasteful. Um, you should be more tasteful. You should get in a house. Yeah. yeah. So let's open it up for questions a little bit. Um, Jack has the microphone. He's going to come around. Did you have to say, did you have? I, no, I just, I just really enjoyed that last answer. I was like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I just was affirming him. I like this idea also as a, a poet of being possessed, you know, when you're writing and, or as, as a playwright, just being kind of possessed by the ghosts and these memories and things like that. I mean, that is, it's a yeah, powerful thing. I, I think um, the difficulty in writing is knowing, T.S. Eliot, and I'm cribbing this from Eliot, he says, knowing when to be conscious and knowing when to be unconscious, right? So knowing when in the work to just follow the spirit of it and knowing when to check that spirit <laughs> a bit, because it's not as though ghosts are always right, right? Uh, or the spirit is always sort of right. I think we have this idea that like if it's spirit, it's pure, right? And it's like, nah, some things you want to, you, you know, you just want to put in check, you know? Um, but there is, there is a moment where for me, when I'm writing, I'm interested in what I would call almost like the words are coming, but there's a way in which there's silence above the words and silence underneath the words. And it's just clear. Like, I'm interested in that. And it has to happen at some point. In the, it has to happen, even if it's deep in revision. There needs to become a point where the words sort of lock in and the body is full and the spirit is there. And, it, that, and it's everything that's there is what it is. And that's only what it can be. Um, for, for that moment. It makes me think of this, the William Burroughs book, A Ticket That Exploded, where he talks about language as a virus. And like maybe the, the poem itself is the ghost. Maybe the words are the ghost. And they are coming through. You're just allowing them. I do think sometimes the work wants, you know, when things are working well, that the work has chosen you to like, it, it, I need to be written. Let's work, like you know, let's work this out together. And it wants to work through you, and then how you balance that inspiration and craft. 
Um, you don't want to only read first drafts. Many of you are probably writers as well. You know, you don't want to only read first drafts. And yet you also don't want to, you know, I can't, this is me, but I can't listen to pet sounds. Things get overproduced. And then it's like, oh, God, I wish there was a little wildness, a little freedom here. Uh, and trying to find that balance between inspiration and craft, where it, for each of us probably has a different sweet spot. Um, you know, the ghost and the vessel sort of find a way to work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, any questions out there? Yeah. Oh, we got one. Hi, my name's Christopher. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Views and Brews. I come here all the time, and actually, I usually ask the first question. Um, Hello, all Christopher. Right, Christopher. <laughs> Bless you. Let's applaud. Yes, applaud. Um, and, and sorry, Roger, but this one is a little more for Kirk. Uh, he mentioned that he um, dabbles in Buddhism, and I know that um, we, we did discuss the Bible and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. Um, I know that Buddhism focuses a lot on concentration and the here and now and mindfulness. Um, do spirits and um, ghosts and or other spooky things play any role in Buddhism? Or is it purely the here and now and the cerebral and the material? Thank you. Oh, that's a fun question to think about. I mean, my practice has to do uh, with the here and now, but I would say nothing with the cerebral. I think the cerebral frequently keeps me out of the here and now. Um, and so I, th uh, and yes, there's a long history of like the ghosts, um, ghosts through texts, ghosts through masters conveying um, wisdom or being overturned by their students. Um, but I think, you know, when you were talking about the silence before and after, I think that there's a, in my practice, there's this notion of um, being both present, being myself, being my true spirit, and also not um, that balance between trying to not manage things or control things um, and also not be out of control. It's hard to articulate, I think, in some ways. Um, but I think that there's a, uh, I was thinking, Earlier in our conversation, I think that a thing we haven't talked about much is like there's this premise that the reason we have ghosts is because the spirit is not at rest um, and whose spirits end up not being at rest. I think there are times in my life when my spirit is both present and at rest um, and things generally feel pretty good then. Um, there are also times when my spirit is present and not at rest and things can feel great then. I'm agitated. I'm passionate. Um, I think the times that I most fear are those times when my spirit is either not present um, or is asleep. Uh, it's terrible to be awake and asleep at the same time, or it feels terrible to me. And I usually <coughs> don't feel it until it's over, until I wake up and I think, what happened? Why was I, I could be with people and have ignored them and not loved them. I can be with myself and not have touched the work or really touched my, you know, uh, uh, my true desires. Um, I can just be turned off and then turn back on. I can be with my kids and not be with my kids, but doing some imaginary email in my head to some colleague that I'm pissed off at. Um, I think those are times when I'm most scared. Um, yeah. Another question? Hi. Hi, I'm Annie, and um, thank you guys for such an interesting and insightful conversation. But I gotta say, I feel like my chest is gonna explode if I don't hear a ghost story. And I wanna say that my, well, the specific story I'd like to hear if you have one, is I can remember the first ghost story I ever heard, which my dad told us. I heard it so many times through my life, and I'm not gonna tell it now, but I've, I've heard it forever. I feel like you're called you here to tell the story. You have to tell the story. You have to tell the story. You have the very story we all need to hear. 
Oh, okay. Well, my, uh, my dad went to medical school in Italy, and he got a really cheap apartment above this cafe, and where he and these Italian dudes would hang out and have espresso, you know, at night. And he used to tell them, like, oh, my God, I love my apartment. It's so cheap, such a great deal. And they'd all act a little weird to him about it. And he said at night when he was studying, he would hear this breathing that sounded like somebody crying. It sounded like, ha, ah, ah. And he would think that it was just his own breathing, you know, bouncing around on the walls and stuff like that. And one night it became very, very loud and he held his breath so, to see if it really was his breath or if he was actually hearing this and he heard it and it freaked him out. So he immediately got out of his apartment and went downstairs to be with people, you know? And um, he sat with those guys and they said, Tom, what's, you know, he looked, he was shaken and they said, Tom, what's up? And he said, you know, I hear this breathing in my apartment, sounds like somebody crying, it's really freaking me out. And they all kind of nod their heads and go, oh, it's her. And he's like, what? What do you mean? And they say, well, the person who had the apartment before you was a young woman, she was a singer, and she, was, she got pregnant by a married man, and she jumped out the window of that apartment. So... That was a ghost story. Why my dad chose to tell me that when I was eight, I really don't know. Your dad's a G. Your dad is real. He's the real deal. He, he wanted you to be prepared. Well, like, talking, you know, speaking to the monstrous, that was Tom, my dad. But anyway, what I'd like to, if you could tell us your, the first ghost story you heard or, or the story that made you excited about ghosts, I would love to hear those stories. So that's not my question. It's a sure. demand. All right. I, I, I actually had thought about this before, and I, I hope my mom is not listening because she'll be like, what? What were they teaching you in fifth grade? So the first ghost story, we had, to, we had a language arts class, right? This is back when you had language arts and writing. And this was, I, I grew up in New Jersey, and we were tasked with reading um, some ghost stories, and our teacher was big on us retelling these ghost stories. And so... This is the ghost story. Now, I haven't read this ghost story in 26 years, right? 27 years, so it's been a long time, but this is the ghost story as I remember it. Uh, it's happening in a little New England town where there is a cemetery between uh, the wom this woman's house who, who goes to the church, we'll call her Catherine, between Catherine's house and the church. And she normally wakes up when she hears the bell from the church and the bell rings three times and she knows it's time to get up and she gets up and she dresses and she proceeds to the church where she normally sits in the back row. Well, she hears two chimes but doesn't hear the third and thinks this must be a mistake. Wakes up, dresses. The light isn't yet quite right outside but she nevertheless, she says, you know, it seems as though this is church time. So she walks, and she walks to the church, and she sits in the back pew. But what she notices, people aren't sitting in the places that they normally sit. Where Goody Johnson would sit in the front to the left, there's someone else who's sitting just slightly to the right of Goody Johnson. And so she's noting that no one is sitting in their proper spaces. And she finally turns to her right, and she realizes that the person sitting over to her right died just eight months before. 
And so she says, okay, maybe I'm, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. So she waits to the end of service, and the minister gets up and she recognizes that this isn't the minister that she's normally used to seeing. And she hears him intone in the benediction, for all those who are alive and remain, if they re seek to remain alive, they will leave before the benediction is over. So he's moving through the benediction, and she's, this is her first time having to get up and leave the church, not at the appointed time. But she does. She gets up. But as she gets up, she feels as if everyone is turning to watch her. And she decides, you know what? I'm going to take the minister's word, and I'm going to walk out the back door. So she walks, but she notices, and she can hear, she can feel as though people are following her. And she thinks, if I can just get back to home, if I can just get back home, if I can just get back home. But she hears behind her, the whole congregation is following her. They're following her back to her house. And so she begins to walk quicker, faster. And she's walking, she notices she's coming upon the graveyard. And she hopes, if I can just get past the graveyard. But then she starts to feel as if they're right there on the nape of her neck. They're right there. <laughs> so that's where I learned, like, that was my first girl story in fifth grade. And I remember doing that, and it was just, I have to be honest with you, it, was so, it, was, it felt like I was, I don't know, it felt like I was participating in, like, sin, right? Like, telling this ghost story. <laughs> it was the most awesome thing, and it's like, the reaction that you had, and I think this is why, like, I have to say my fifth grade, Fifth grade is when I decided, I think, to become a writer subconsciously. It's when I told my first ghost story, I wrote my first original poem, and felt the energy of like writing your first simile or metaphor. And I just thought, oh, this is what I want to do. And then like, you know, you go to high school and you're like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. Uh, but that was like the first ghost story I've ever Kirk, do you have one? I don't have a ghost story. The, the thought that came into my mind was this. Uh, this will bum you out. I'm sorry, dude, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when my uh, grandma was passing, my mom's mom was passing, uh, I would go sit with her every day. She was in one of these assisted living places, uh, and it took forever. For a while, I would feed her this clear gelatin that like has a bunch of nutrients in it, and it would be awful, and I would only get a couple of bites, and then the nurses would say, you got her to eat more than we can ever get her to eat, and I was just like, oh, if that's true, that's awful. Um, and then in the last week, I sort of had a sense that it was all just about over and my grandma was only laying in bed and she wasn't talking at all and she was just lying there. And I read enough to know, I read this thing that said that, the, they can, that, that people can still hear and that hearing's the last sense to go. And so I would sit there for hours every day and just natter on in the most annoying way about my theater company, about things that, about plays I was working on, things I would never tell my grandmother and that she couldn't care about. Um, and on the... Uh, last day, I remember thinking like, this is probably like, it just can't go on like this. this is probably gonna be one of the last days. Uh, and I was sad and I was crying and I stopped by the door to sort of get myself together um, uh, and compose myself. And I stood there so long that I felt like it was rude to leave because I had, it was minutes and I felt like it was rude to stand there and then not say goodbye to my grandmother again. So I turned around and I said, uh, goodbye Mimi. And she raised her arm and she waved to me. 
And then I ran back to the bed and I was like, oh my God. And I talked to her and talked to her, talked to her. Uh, but no other sign from her from then on. And then she passed the next day. Um, but that idea that her spirit, she's not a ghost, she's a human being, she's alive, but that her spirit was there all the time while I was saying these crazy, insane things. And that for whatever reason, she had the ability in that last moment to, when I said goodbye, to wave to me. Um, it was remarkable. So there's a non-ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> and it is interesting. I mean, those moments between life and death, when you... You're there. Like, I had to put my dog down last year. And there was this moment. He, I mean, he was so sick. And he was just lying there. And he was kind of out of it. And then the second when he died, I knew it. He was gone. Like, it was gone. There was something that was just, you know, no longer there. I was thinking about ghosts today. I was thinking, too, a lot about um, my brother died a couple years ago. But his Facebook page still exists. And every once in a while, either people post to it or you get those, it's your anniversary. Um, and the sort of digital ghost or the real ghost, however it works, um, that there's still a presence that has this activity um, that willingly or unwillingly reminds me of this life and this presence. Um, and that people can post to it and put new things and then it pops up in my feed. And one other thing about the, the ghost story that you told me, I was so wonderful, which we haven't talked about tonight, but is the, these women in ghost stories, they're usually like the mistresses, or it's the love children, or it's the, the children that aren't part of the, 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 the actual, um, you know, the family that is supposed to move the seed forward. You know, they're always kind of the alternative to the family, and the stories that they hold are very interesting also through literature. Um, we have, let's see what time, we have time for one more question. I got the mic. Okay, then you are the a little lucky. Ghost story. Okay. I have a question, I just wanted to share with everyone. Um, I lived in this house in South Austin on Jewel Street, and uh, had been dating this guy while I was here, and he was third generation. Um, I guess they own funeral homes. His family, and. Uh, he used to tell me, I'm so uncomfortable in your house. I'm so uncomfortable in your house. Well, we ended up coming to a concert over here, and we started talking to a lot of friends, and they were telling me about, um, they were asking me questions. I go, yeah, I said, my rent is so cheap. It's great. I live in Charles Whitman's house, the UT sniper. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. So um, wow. I was like, yeah, and... He, you know, he was already, he was white, and then he turned really white <laughs> when he heard this story, and he grabbed me from the side, and he just like, why didn't you ever tell me you lived in Charles Whitman's house? I was like, I don't know, I, you know, I don't really advertise it, you know, it's cheap rent, but you know, what do you do? And uh, he goes, I always thought it was your roommates that hated me, and I felt so uncomfortable in your home. He said, uh, you have two women ghosts in your house. And I go, I do? And he goes, yeah. He goes, and they do not like men. And he goes, from now on, when I pick you up, please, if you don't mind, I'm just going to wait for you at the curb. Then later, years later, I'm out on some other bar, and I'm talking to some guy, and he's, doing a, he's, he's getting his master's degree or whatever, and he was writing a story about him. And then he's the one that tells me, he goes, oh my, I tell him the whole story. He goes, oh yeah, he goes, those two women, was he killed his wife, and I guess it was his mother or mother-in-law oh, in the house. And I go, yeah, but I lived in the back bedroom, not the front bedroom. 
and thinking that was better. He goes, no. He goes, he killed her in the back bedroom and kept his guns in that closet where oh, I used to Lord. keep my clothes. <laughs> so it was really wild, but I just had to share that story Ooh. that I lived in that house on Jewel Street in South Austin. And I want to hear the shortest ghost story also that this gentleman was going to say. But this story reminded me, I just had to tell this too, really quick. I used to work for KMFA. Does anyone know where the KMFA building is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, so that building always freaked me out. And I, when I first moved here in 2004, I would do the weekend morning shows. So I'd be on at like 6 a.m. And I'd have to go in at 5.30 and get my playlist ready and everything. And I was just like terrified every single time I walked into that building. And I'd turn on all the lights. And I always had to go in the back and like turn off the automation that was on. And so I would do that and I would run out of the back room and I would go get my, my CDs ready and I would like just do my show and then leave as fast as I could at that building. And it wasn't until I'd worked there for three years, no, it must have been two years, that somebody told me that uh, that, that back room used to be the office of Marie, Madeline Marie O'Hare. And who was, you know, like the famous atheist who was chopped up and murdered and buried in... West Texas or something, and that and I quit. I was like, I'll see you later. Why does it only work in the direction where there's the bad haunting? Why don't real realtors say like a, a couple that had no debts and loved everybody and died with no grudges died here? So you're like, oh, good juju. I will stay there. Yeah, yeah. I'll stay there. That's that's fine. where I want to live. It's weird how that energy and those feelings. Like, it, I mean. That building always freaked me out and still does to this day. But after that story, I'm like, that's, that is what it has to be, is that. And I will never go there again. Yes. But I love the station and please support KMFA. But like, <laughs> <laughs> one last ghost story. Well, I'm going to tell you the world's shortest ghost story in just a minute. But I've always loved ghost stories. That's one of the reasons I'm here tonight for my earliest time. And I've kind of researched them a little bit and found that most of the world the most primitive stories, you go back, they're ghost stories. And stories about ancestors and um, my, and when you were talking about the no theater, I'd never realized they, they involve what I think every successful ghost story has and that's some kind of conflict, injustice, that's gotta be confronted and dealt with so that everybody, including the ghost, can move on. And if it doesn't get dealt with, then it doesn't move on, and the next person has is living in Charles Whitman's house. You know, um, that's okay. The, the, I didn't make this up. I've read this story. It's the world's short, shortest ghost story. The last person on Earth sat in a room. There was a knock at the door. The end. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard I like that. that. That's yeah. good. That's a good one to end on. Any. Any parting thoughts as we leave the night with our, with our ghosts, as we leave our ghosts tonight? Embrace the ghost in you. Well, beautiful. Well, now we are, we're all free to go and watch the real ghost stories yeah. so, <laughs> unfold over the evening. So thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you to Roger. <laughs> thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Roger. Take care. Next week, we have a Views and Brews with Two Guys on Your Head live, so be sure to come out for that. And uh, listen back to the archive of, of uh, Views and Brews, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to A Views and Brews, recorded live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas, for KUT Radio. You'll find a complete archive of all of our Views and Brews in the iTunes store, or go to KUT.org for more information. Thanks for listening.